could he do that? Are you on What? Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brabber, and alongside me is Logan Camden, and today we have a very fun show for you all. The format is going to be NBA hot takes. We each have five of them, only giving you guys the boldest takes. Going to be a little controversial, probably, but should also be a whole lot of fun. So, with that, Logan, I will just hand the mic over to you. What is your first NBA hot take of the day? I'll start out with my boldest take, and that's that the Chicago Bulls are going to land the one seed in the East. I believe in them, man. It's just, it's so smooth. I have been a DeRozan and Levine supporter this entire time, and it's just instant offense. They run the sixth most pick and roll in basketball, and it works. They're two of the toughest buckets in basketball. I've touched on this. Levine shooting 46% in the mid-range of the season, 55% on stepbacks, 49% on pull-ups. DeRozan has been just as dominant. He's shooting 66% on turnarounds, 55% on pull-ups, 54% on stepbacks, 46% on fadeaways. And they are the only team in the NBA with 225 point-per-game scores. Carson, that is something that we have not seen since Stephen Curry and Kevin Durant were on the same team. And I said earlier this season that they were the best offensive duo in basketball. That obviously was a stretch, but I do think they're the best pure bucket-getting duo in basketball at this point in the season. Again, Carson, you can still take uh, James Harden and Kevin Durant, especially with the hot streak that they've been going on and with what KD has been doing, dude. It is. It's stupid. Like 60% efficiency, uh, over 40% from deep. It's it's stupid what KD's doing, but I still think this is the best pure bucket-getting duo and they're the best closing team in basketball because of these two. Carson DeRozan is the leading fourth quarter scorer in the NBA with eight points per game on 61, 71, 87 splits in the fourth quarter. Levine is the 14th leading fourth quarter in score, uh, score in basketball with 5.8 fourth quarter uh, points per game. And surrounding them, I just think it works. It's something that you've touched on that we've seen from the Bulls all season long. You've got a bunch of smart ball movers and catch and shooters. They're fourth and secondary assist this team. They just flow offensively. And then on the other side of the ball, it's something that we've also touched on here on Nerd Session a while. This team plays so hard, man. Ninth in defensive rating, and they're 11th in defensive rating since the absence of Patrick Williams' injury. That is just off of effort. This is the number two transition team in all of basketball. They're eighth in fast break points, 10th in turnovers forced per game. And you just see it, dude. I think you just see it on defense, man. Levine is so much more engaged. Um, Caruso and Lonzo just play so hard. Everybody here just gives so much effort. And... They've gotten out to this hot streak still without uh, Nikola Vucevic really playing well at all. He's missed the last two games in COVID-19 protocols, and this team is 5-1 and one when Vucevic gives them 15 or more points per game. Like, if Vucevic just pulls his weight, they win. And, like, that's something that I think you can look forward to. He has been abysmal to start this season. I think he's shooting, like, in the 30% from the field, like 23% from deep. He has been horrendous. And as for them versus Brooklyn, because I think that's obviously their biggest competition, it's tough because of how good Brooklyn's bench is playing right now. What they have been doing recently is insane. They are the best three-point shooting team in all of the NBA. I think they're shooting 44% of the Nets are uh, from deep in these last eight games. But the Bulls just have more quality wins uh, than Brooklyn. They beat Brooklyn head-to-head. They've beat Utah. They've beat Dallas. The Nets only have two wins thus far over projected playoff teams in the Wizards and the Sixers. And I think the final piece that if you were going to push back on Chicago is their depth. It's been our biggest criticism of Chicago so far this season. 
<laughs> I kind of like it. I'm a big Javante Green guy. He stepped up in the absence of Patrick Williams as a starter. He's great at attacking closeouts. He rolls and attacks the rack hard, and he hustles on both ends. And, like, look, man, this is a guy giving you five points and four boards a game. I'm not going to overstate the impact of Javante Green, but he's gritty. He plays tough, and that's just the mentality of this team. As I've said, Derek Jones Jr., strong, great athlete, active rebounder, hard worker. My favorite player in the NBA, Tony Bradley. I talk about him too much. Carson. He only gets 10 minutes per game. This team is 14 points better with Tony Bradley on the floor. Yeah, get a load of that. He sets hard screens. He rolls to the rack hard, and he plays his role well. Alizé Johnson, tremendous effort, uh, tremendous rebounder, high effort, high energy guy. The guy I really want to touch on, these two guys. Ayuda Somnu, bro. I don't know how you cannot be. This dude has looked amazing, bro. He's shooting 45% off the catch. He's another high effort guy. I think he plays a really big role in anchoring this bench unit the rest of the season. He's a smart cutter. He's got a nice handle. He's got a pretty floater game. And if we're talking about guys anchoring this bench unit the rest of the way, we still have yet to see Kobe White. And I think he's the X factor the rest of the way, man. He's going to be debuting soon, I believe, in one of these next coming games. And if he comes back 100%, this is a guy that we have been really critical of here on Nerd Sesh. He fits that six-man role really well. He is a guy who can just fill it up and go get buckets. And, I mean, that's been kind of the issue for Chicago thus far, is when DeRozan and Levine leave the floor, it's not too often. They're pretty good at staggering their minutes. Offense is pretty hard to come by. Kobe White fixes that issue. Like, and you're going to be able to rely on Kobe in those slogs through the first and second quarter, that third quarter slog, and you're going to be able to let DeRozan and Levine come back fresh and close out these games for you. I know it's a long shot, Carson, because the Nets are dominant. You could, you, they're a better three-point shooting team. They've got a better bench, but I believe in the gritty tenacity and energy of this team. I believe in their top two scorers and their top two closers. I believe in Vucevic getting better the rest of this season. I believe in this defense continuing to be dominant. And uh, I believe in this bench. I, I think the Bulls are going to win the East. That is my hottest take for today. Look, it's a hot take. I also think it's a very justifiable one. Because one of the really crucial components is that there is nobody who is going to be trying to get that one seed harder. Like, this isn't just a really talented team with multiple really high-level players and role guys who understand their jobs and they're well-coached and all these things working in their favor. They also just play so hard, and it means more to them. I mean, the Nets, sure— They've got stuff to prove this year with Kyrie out, obviously. It's been more of a slog for them to win games. Their role guys are super committed. Milwaukee, we'll see what they look like at full strength. Certainly, they'll find a rhythm at some point. The Sixers, obviously, have won a lot of games. The Wizards now care a ton, but I think we can safely say they're not going to be in the conversation for the one seed at the end of this all. The Bulls are a team that has been a top five defense up to this point. I mean, they're athletic, they're long, but also just because they really, really do play hard and their stars embrace that, their role guys embrace that. And guess what? If you're talented enough, that really does matter when it comes to winning regular season games. So I think that the East is open as far as the one seed. I mean, I'm not willing to write out any great team like the Bucks, for example, even though they're sitting at 6-8 and eight right now because there's so much basketball left to be played and nobody has been overwhelmingly dominant in the conference. But yes, the Bulls absolutely have a path to get there. And when it comes playoff time, it'll be tough for me to see them as the favorite. I think that there are teams that have in Milwaukee such a replicable formula in Brooklyn I think also a high two-way ceiling that they've shown and just star power at the top that is different level 
But regular season-wise, I think that there is certainly a world in which the Bulls are the one seed. And I think you touch on a good point there. That's why this is a regular season take for me about the Bulls, because I still think there are a lot of things that I'm going to be concerned with come playoff time. The first thing is the just a lot of pick and roll. You know, this really isn't a... Don't get me wrong. There's a certain flow to this offense where guys are moving the ball to open shooters, but it's so much predicated on Levine and DeRozan just getting to those spots, um, which I think you can counter. I think the Bucks have a really good defensive formula to attack that if we see a matchup between them. I think they're just a little too dependent on it right now. Um, I think that Vucevic, obviously, as a straight-up rim protector against some of these other forces that you're going to run into is an issue. Um those are kind of my biggest issues, and I I don't know, man. We have a lot more season left to play to really get a justified take on them come playoff time, but I do have a lot of questions uh, for when we do see the Bulls in the playoffs as of right now. But I am hopeful uh, that with the return of Kobe White that we'll see a more reinvigorated roster. I really do think he changes the, di- the dynamic here, though. Yeah, and he's coming back tonight. So that's going to be really interesting because Kobe is a guy who played some really good basketball down the stretch last year, is certainly a skilled scorer of the basketball, can shoot the hell out of the ball, but has at times been a little bit trigger happy, a little bit, hey, we play the game how I want to. I do think he progressed as a passer last year, but 100%. It's going to have to be that six-man role for him, and I think that he can excel in that. And I wouldn't be surprised if he's like a fringe six-man-of-the-year candidate by the end of this all. So you are adding talent. Obviously, Patrick Williams being out is stretching their depth a little bit thin, really, in the front court. I don't get why you love Tony Bradley so much. And this is a guy who loves such weird NBA players, but they're interesting. Tony Bradley is boring. He's like a prototypical bench big. What does he do that excites you? He's not exciting, man. The the man just grinds, all right? You see him big body a little guard on a screen and roll to the rack hard. Come on, bruh. You got love for all these weirdos across the league, and you can't show any to my man, Tony Bradley. This is sad, Carson. Look, man, I reserved my weird big man love for a favorite of yours for Ken Birch, because I actually think he's fun, because he does more interesting things, because he's got the little floater game and whatnot. I don't care about Tony Bradley, but I do think the depth is certainly a component here. However, if you look at their star guys, Not crazy durable necessarily, but since Levine had the ACL tear, he's generally been pretty healthy. DeRozan's generally been pretty healthy. Vooch, Lonzo, like, you know, they're not consistent 82-game guys, but for the most part, generally healthy. And I do think they can survive short stretches without DeRozan or without Levine because, I mean, they have such a balanced approach where those guys do rotate possessions. And they do bring value as both scorers and facilitators. And we've seen both those guys carry much larger loads for offenses previously. DeRozan was a point guard last year. Levine maybe wasn't super apt as a playmaker, but he had to carry an entire offense last year. So, yeah, I think in a lot of ways they are well-equipped to win a ton of games. I have been fascinated and excited by this team. I think it's all been justified and... I really don't have a ton of concerns as far as winning regular season games. I would like to see them shoot the ball from the perimeter a little bit more. I think they have some great shooting on this team, and I really want to see that maximized. Of course, I want to see Vooch play better, and we'll see what these role guys are really made of. But, I mean, they certainly have a few guys you can really count on, and the Kobe White introduction is going to be really fun and interesting. And 
hopefully helps them. I would think it should. Like you said, you're adding more offensive dynamism. And if he's able to sort of just have his few minutes a game where he does his thing and operate as a catch and shooter where he can be great and all that, I really think that he can fit. So I like that take, Logan. My first hot take. Honestly, I don't even know if this is that hot when you actually think about it, but it might sound a little bold. We are marching towards the best MVP race of our lifetimes. We have multiple superstar players doing superhuman things on elite teams, on elite efficiency, and just playing some of the best offensive basketball we've ever seen with massive offensive loads, and they're going to win a whole ton. Start with KD, who you mentioned, putting up 38.5 and 5 on 59-42-84 splits, shooting 61% from mid-range, his team is 10-4. and four. They've been almost 11 points per 100 possessions better with him, and they need every ounce of that because the production from Harden has been lagging behind, and they don't have another really high-level offensive option beyond those two. That's one of the best seasons ever, Logan. Like, if that's sustained, it should be pretty obvious, but guess what? We've never seen anybody score 29 a game on 68% true shooting. So... That is immediately like, oh my God, that dude is going to win MVP every single year. But then you have Steph Curry, who happens to be putting up 28, 6, and 7 on 62% true shooting and is on a Warriors team that has been the best in basketball, that has outscored opponents by 18 points per 100 possessions when he plays, that is 11 and 2, and that is the number three offense in basketball without another star level scorer alongside him. I mean, Steph is obviously, as far as team offense goes, certainly in the regular season, the guy with the greatest impact, even if he's not scoring or touching the ball. And we have seen that consistently in his ability to amplify talent. And he's only going to get better. He's only going to get more efficient. Like, he has had several off-shooting nights that you would not expect to be sustained for an 82-game season. So... That has to be an MVP year, like when you're talking about that kind of raw production and efficiency and impact on winning and team success. And then you have Nikola Jokic, who's putting up 25, 14, and 6 on 59 and a half, 39, 77 splits, 67% true shooting. This isn't how I judge players because I think these are flawed stats, but if you're one of those guys, he leads the league in every advanced single number metric, win shares, Box plus minus, both offensive and defensive, which, by the way, I think is a funny little indictment of defensive plus minus and how those stats can't separate themselves from just box score numbers and really largely team success. Because, let's face it, Nikola Jokic isn't exactly the best defender in basketball, but he has been playing hard on that end, and he has been on a great team defense, and he also leads in VORP. So again, I don't really care about those stats because I don't think you can really summarize a basketball player's value with one number, but nevertheless... Pretty darn impressive. And you want to talk about team impact? Well, first of all, obviously, they're without Jamal Murray. MPJ has been in a nonstop slump. And the Nuggets have been 26 points per 100 possessions better when he plays and have outscored opponents by 16 points per 100 possessions when he's on the floor. So to me, and I've said this, those are the three best players in basketball. They are three of the most revolutionary offensive talents we've ever seen. And... They are all doing this on teams that are winning a lot and desperately need them to do this to win a lot. These were my three top guys before the year as far as the MVP race, but holy 
cow, man. I mean, those guys are all MVPs of the league every single season if they don't have to compete with each other. But even going beyond that, Logan, the supporting cast in the MVP race, Paul George is putting up 26 and a half, 8 and 5 on 45, 36, 89 splits for an 8 and 5 Clippers team whose second best guy right now is Reggie Jackson shooting 39%, Terrence Mann, or Nick Batum. Like, they're winning games somehow. He's having a phenomenal offensive season. I think even he will get more efficient and shoot the ball better from deep. And he's playing really high-level defense. Then, you have the tier of superstar talents who are just going to make better cases as the year goes along. Giannis, when the Bucks start to win more games. Embiid, once he's healthy again. And it's like, oh my God, he's the only real clear all-star talent for this Sixers team that's probably going to win 50 games. Luka, once he starts to produce more efficiently. Those guys are all going to be very respectable candidates by the end of the year, believe you me, and were some of the front runners preseason. And then you have the final tier of really good players on teams that are going to win a whole lot of games, a whole lot of games, who aren't going to make any legitimate case because they're not necessarily top 10 players in basketball and they won't have the raw production and just clear value of the top tier guys. But somebody will sprinkle in a shout out for them and they'll be pretty darn good candidates as far as the back half of the top 10 goes. For this tier, we're talking Jimmy. We're talking Gobert and Donovan Mitchell for the Jazz. We're talking Levine. Some people might throw DeRozan into that conversation for the Bulls. Chris Paul and Book for the Suns. So it's going to be insane. I mean, I think the top three is genuinely going to be like nothing we have maybe ever seen. I think back to some of the great races in NBA history we had a couple in the late 80s with Magic and MJ, and 92-93 was a really good race. But like in our lifetime, I don't know what compares. Maybe 2016-17 with Russ Harden and Kawhi and LeBron, that was really good. The winner ended up not being so impressive in the scheme of things. But other than that, dude, like... We've had some flawed MVP winners. Like, there have been really tight races, like 2006. You have LeBron, you have Dirk, you have Steve Nash, you have Kobe. But I don't know, man. I don't think we've ever had a race like this in our lifetimes. I think we are seeing peak basketball from three of the greatest offensive players we've ever seen. And again, they're going to win a whole lot of games. Their team's going to need every ounce of what they can bring, and they're going to do it on crazy efficiency. So, like, I just think we are in for quite the MVP race this year. I feel very confident saying that. I mean, do you think it could surpass, like, uh, like Big O, Wilt, and uh, who was it? Who was the other one? Oscar Robertson. That was 61-62. No, oh. I said Big O, Wilt, and, and who's the other one? Excuse me. Bill Russell yeah. won that year. And, I mean, do you think it could, obviously, different time period, those numbers are inflated because of how much they were on the floor do you think a race like this could surpass it? Do you already feel that way with the depth of candidates? So, let's take a quick trip back 60 years in NBA history. Why not? That year is very famous because you have 50-point-per-game Wilt, you have 30-point-per-game triple-double Oscar, and then Bill Russell ends up winning it all. I would argue that all of those candidates were probably more flawed in a traditional MVP sense than what we might see from these guys this year. And that... Oscar, his team was just above 500. Philly was, uh, I mean, 
a solid playoff team but didn't win at an elite level. And Bill Russell ends up winning MVP because he's the best defensive player on the planet on the best team, but he's scoring 18 points a game or whatever. I think this year, all of these teams should win in the mid-50s. All of these guys should have ridiculous raw offensive output. And again, they should do it on absurd efficiency. So maybe my take should be this could be the best MVP race ever because now that I'm really thinking about it, I genuinely think it could. Like, I'm trying to think of other years. You have a couple races between Larry and Magic in the mid-80s, like 87, but Magic kind of was pretty clearly the MVP of the league that year. It's it's really going to be tough to think of as far as this many candidates of this kind of all-time quality. So... I don't even know who the clear favorite is. I mean, my gut instinct is Steph will win because I think the Warriors will probably win the most games. I think teams will look at him and say, well, he may not have the least help, but Harden is probably going to work against KD to extend that conversation. And people are going to want Steph to have another MVP, I just think, fundamentally. And he's going to have an insane year and an insane team impact. But right now, I don't know who the favorite is. I think Steph actually has to be third because... His raw production and efficiency just hasn't been quite as good as those other two guys. But you could make a case for any of them, and I would be very impressed by that case. I just want to give that a shout-out to my dad in the chat. He's uh, throwing out some other MVP races of his lifetime. Uh, Jordan Neek, uh, Magic and Bird from the 80s. And then he throws out an ABA one, Carson. Shout-out uh, David Thompson and George Gervin and their race for the scoring title. Um, I think you're right, though. I think I'd also have my MVP race in that order at this point in time. But also, dude... We're only getting better. Like, the MVP races in next year, in five years, in ten years, I don't, I'm not saying this should be the standard that we should expect from superstars in the NBA, but the league is only getting more talented. Like, I just, I just love the talent we have in basketball right now. It's, it's astounding. Another thing that I think is going to be really fun is not just the caliber of candidates. I really don't see anybody running away with this. And... Yeah, some of the races that I was thinking of and that I mentioned earlier, 89-90, you had a super split vote between Magic and Barkley and Michael Jordan where you're looking at still pretty much peak Magic. Barkley has a phenomenal year for Philly, actually has the most first-place votes, and then Jordan puts up like 34 a game. That was one of the greats. And then, as I mentioned, 92-93 was Barkley, Akeem, and Jordan. That was Barkley's phenomenal year with the Suns. Jordan has a classic 33 a game for Chicago. But since then, man, I really cannot think of one that had that caliber of candidates, that tight of a race. And I think that's what we're in for this year. So there's my first hot take. And honestly, like I said, the more I think about it, it almost just feels rational and kind of obvious. But maybe if I up it to best ever, then we're getting into hot take territory because it's early. Mm -hmm. But I have supreme faith in the candidates at the top here. And again, the depth. It's going to be fun. Dude didn't even mention the classic 2003-2004 race with Peja Stoyakovich and Jermaine O'Neal. What are you doing, Carson? That's correct. I didn't mention that race. Kind of foolish if you ask me. Carson, you go with the uh, historic campaign of one award. I actually have another award, which I think is pretty historic this season. I'm going with the uh, most improved race. I think this is the deepest most improved race uh, I'm not going to say of all time, but in a very long time. And note I say deepest and not best, because I think if we're looking at best, I think the best, most improved race that we've seen of top candidates 
has to be 2020 with Brandon Ingram's leap uh, offensively, finally getting uh, his time to shine in New Orleans. Bam Adebayo's big defensive leap. He goes from like seven points to 15, becomes one of the best uh, defensive players on the planet. Luka's leap goes from 21 to 29 that year. And then Jason Tatum going from 25, or excuse me, 15 to 23. That, I think, top-end candidates-wise, I don't think I don't know if we're ever going to match again. That was a crazy leap that we saw from those guys. But I think this is certainly the deepest, and I don't even think I'm touching on some of these guys. We've touched on, in two videos already, Tyler Hero and Miles Bridges. Hero going from 15 to 21. Uh, your guy, Miles Bridges, going from 13 to 21. You guys can actually check out videos on the channel, so I'm not going to go super in-depth on those guys and the leaps that they have taken. But you take a look at the other candidates... Um, I think the most surprising one, and I've touched on this in some previous podcasts, I think my favorite actually might be Tyrese Maxey right now, Carson. Uh, Tyrese is up from 8 to 18 points per game and from 2 assists a night to 5 assists per game. His efficiency in the mid-range, dude, has been stupid this season. He is such a good, difficult shot maker. He has been imperative to why the Sixers have had such a free-flowing offense. Again, I said this in a previous podcast, I think he's the best point guard on this roster. He's doing it on 52-41-88 splits. And I'm not a gambler, but if you are, Carson, he's got plus 5,000 odds right now to win this award, which means you put down 10 bucks, you win 500. You put down 50, you win, what is it, 25,000? 5,000. 5, 5, well, I was. Wait, what are the odds? It's plus 5,000. <laughs> oh, you put down 50, then you win 250. Yeah, exactly. It's, no, 2,500. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was going to say, but you cut me off. Yeah. Let's try to do more math wrong here. What's 7 plus 6? 12. Correct. Uh, thanks. What's 9 plus 10, Carson? 17. That was so disappointing. I set you up, man. I threw you a lob. Plus 5,000 odds right now. That's stupid. I honestly thought about putting down a bet. Um, I, that's crazy at this point. I think Hero's still the leading guy. Then you've got a guy like Cole Anthony here. I've touched on him too, dude. His efficiency numbers have dipped off, but he's up near 19 points a game from 13. And again, I say deepest. That's without touching on guys like LaMelo Ball, who have really jumped into the upper MVP echelon. Um, not MVP, excuse me, all-star conversation here, going from 16 to 19 points a night, 6 to 7 assists, 6 to 7.5 boards. Anthony Edwards from 19 to 24 points per game. And there's just a myriad of other guys you could throw out there, dude, that have just taken a genuine leap and would be genuine contenders in other classes, like, uh, like the DeJounte Murrays of the world, man. The... Uh, I mean, there's a ton of other guys you could list out. The Jordan Pools of the world. The There are so many guys that have just taken a leap. The maybe an Ant Simons case could be made. And I just think, look, Carson, I look at the de the depth of this class and compare it to recent years. Like, bro, Jeremy Grant was in the conversation last year. I'm not, and numbers-wise, obviously, he was going to be there. But he didn't take a drastic leap in what he is doing, you know, in skill-wise in his game. All of these guys are so much more developed in these skill aspects of their games. Like, I just think it's been so much more predicated on opportunity in recent years, Carson, and I just think we are seeing such a leap in genuine skill and ability from these guys that we just have not seen in other years. Like, 2018, you've got a race between Victor Oladipo, Clint Capella, Spencer Dinwiddie, and Andre Drummond, right? Like, 2017 was pretty stupid with Giannis and Jokic, but Jokic was at like 16 points a night, Giannis was at 21 I think this is the deepest, most improved class in a long time. And, I mean, if you talk about – we've seen this race get better and better year to year because, I mean, you take a look at, like, 2010, Aaron Brooks is winning the award. You look at, like, 04, I believe Corliss Williamson won it at, like, 13 points a game. 
I, this is another race that I anticipate getting better and better each year, but it has been astounding this year. I think it's the deepest race uh, that I've ever seen. Well, first off, let me just say, I am shocked that you did not mention Ja Morant. Like, I think Ja is the front runner to win this award right now. And maybe the skill development doesn't quite compare to Hero or Bridges, but nevertheless, the fact that he has found a way to take the leap from excellent young player to legitimate superstar caliber putting up 26 a night like he's gonna have a very strong case legitimate MVP candidate I know you asked that in your question under the video I mean I know the Grizzlies what are they like six and seven right now like they aren't there record wise but I mean with what he is doing with the circumstances around him I think Ja definitely deserves to be he's even a guy that you could throw out for the MVP conversation Trey Young a guy on a losing team that is putting up stupid numbers I don't want to get it too off base, but yeah, I think Jaws definitely in that, if you're not going to put him in Tier 3, Tier 4 of MVP contenders. Yeah, well, maybe I would have to put Trey and Jaw actually in their own Tier, Tier 5 of guys putting up crazy numbers on teams that are mediocre. That's a good note. Thank you, Logan. My first thought with this is uh, that 2020 race because that was insane. I mean, we saw the legitimate leaps from Siakam, from BI to being clear all-star level guys. We saw Devontae Graham go from a sub five point per game score to an 18 point per game score. We saw Bam take that star leap, which really I think was pretty darn surprising at the time. And we saw Luca start averaging 28 a game or whatever as a second year player. That was a crazy race. I do not think that this compares to that. But if you're talking only about depth, there may be a case. Now, what concerns me a little bit is that a lot of those candidates are second-year guys. LaMelo, Ant, Tyrese Maxey, and I just don't think those guys tend to be viewed as legitimate contenders because it's kind of just an unwritten rule. I mean, early on in the days of Most Improved Player, they did give it out to a few second-year guys, but I think it's been like two decades. I mean, it's been a long time since that's happened. So I think that we do have a few really good candidates at the top. I mean, I think that to me, Miles Bridges is probably the biggest front runner because with him, you talk about how some of it is opportunity. Some of this he showed last year, but it's the skill development compared to where he started last season that is just so jarring. And he's also basically doubled his overall scoring average. I think he has to be the favorite right now. But John and Tyler here, I think, also make very strong cases. And it is a deep race. I mean, we've seen a lot of guys, particularly young guards, improve significantly. And, hey, I'm all for that. It surprises me you say Bridges is the front runner. I think he's at like 39% from the field, 33% from deep. You don't think with the efficiency drop-off that Ja or Hero has overtaken him at this point? Is Bridges down to 39% from the field? Are we sure about that? No, he's shooting 45% from the field. Yeah, I think that it has to be Bridges at this point. I mean, the raw production has dropped off a little bit, as has the efficiency. But again, it's the variety of ways in which he can do it. We've seen his playmaking really come along from where he started this year, even when he wasn't really distributing much, and he's had a couple of really nice games in that respect. Maybe he's not the front runner, but I think that there's a clear top three candidates. I think I just threw Cole Anthony's efficiency numbers out for Miles Bridges. I don't know where I pulled that from. I'm doing math wrong. Now I'm just... My bad, Miles. I didn't mean to do you like that, bro. 
that shook me to my core to hear. I I was like, no, I really don't think so. But yeah, I mean, it has come down a little bit. And obviously he was a 50-40-80 guy last year. But his burden offensively has increased so much. And that dude is just nasty. I mean, he's the Hornets' best player, whether we like it or not. He's better than Lamella right now, in my opinion. Like, that dude is just a straight bucket. That just surprised me to hear you say that. Really? Yeah, I love LaMelo, but he's still a little bit too loose at times, in my opinion. And there's a few too many suspect possessions and shots. And I just really trust Bridges to impose his will as a scorer and to do it in whatever way I need, in transition, as a roll man, as a cutter, attacking in isolation. Like, I just feel like he does his job right now at a little bit of a higher level than LaMelo does. Would LaMelo be three, or would you still have him over Hayward? That's really tight. I honestly think that Hayward is a little bit more reliable night to night, but I'm a big LaMelo guy, so you know what? I'm not going to slander him any further. But this is an interesting take, and I do think that it's going to be a really fun race when all is said and done. So there you have it, a couple of award-related hot takes. This one has nothing to do with an award, okay? This is just about a single guy, and it's not going to be an upbeat take, okay? This is going to be a very critical hot take for you all. Jaron Jackson Jr. is about to be on one of the worst contracts in the entire NBA, he got extended for four years, $105 million this offseason, and he just has not come close to justifying that. And last season was derailed by injuries, so it was okay. We'll see what we get this year. I know a lot of people thought he might be a most improved player candidate, but there are not many people in basketball right now with a bigger gap, in my opinion, between potential conceivable talent and actual production. We are into year four with Triple J. He still can't justify getting on the floor for more than 27 minutes a night. He's still scoring under 14 points per game. And you look at him and you think, here's this 6'11 sharpshooter. He's fluid. He can handle. He can attack closeouts like that, get to the bucket. But in reality, we have a guy who at this stage in the season is shooting 37% from the field, 40% inside the arc, and just does not have a clearly defined role offensively. It's really at this point, his only consistent value is his shooting, which hasn't even been as good as it normally would be this year. He's below 35% from deep. I think that'll improve. But there is just a level of, frankly, I don't know how else to put this, softness that is going to limit Jaron Jackson Jr. for his entire career. The dude is soft. He hates physicality and He doesn't have reliable ways to create offense except for standing on the perimeter and trying to be a wing and take dudes off the bounce. And that looks great because, hey, he can actually really handle the ball for a guy of his size. But then he gets into the paint, and a quarter of his overall shots come in the paint but not in the restricted area, and he shoots 33% on those shots because he's way overly reliant on the floater. Once he finds a rim protector, he shies away from contact. He puts up these tough finishes, and... So he just doesn't have significant offensive value inside the arc. He doesn't have a developed post game. He's not used a ton as a role man, although he does have some value there because he's a good athlete and he's a good floor spacer. So you look at the skill set and it looks really nice, but he just fades too much. I don't trust him, dude. He had four points in their last game and went up to the line for two pretty big free throws and he clanged both of them. 
And you know what? I wasn't surprised at all. Some of it with him just can't be easily quantified. Like, yes, there's skill set stuff, but a lot of it is mentality, aggression. I just don't trust him. And there are some guys who are just like that, dude. And I truly feel that he's one of those guys. He's a well below average rebounder at his position. And defensively actually has been super impressive. And I feel like has lived up to the hype this year more than he has previously. Just so agile on the perimeter, really long, blocking 1.9 shots a game. That can be his saving grace. I mean, if he is going to justify this contract or come close, it is going to be he scores 16-17 a game in a simple role, mostly spacing the floor, and then just operating out of what other people give him, maybe creating for himself a little bit, doing that pretty efficiently, and then being a weapon defensively. But I think we've seen at this point, he's not a center in this league. I mean, he plays at the five and stretches, but I don't love him there. I think that really his value is the ability to guard on the perimeter and be switchable and all that. And so it's not that he's not a good basketball player because I think he really is. He's a talented guy and his production will improve as this year goes along, but he's going to be making $29 million in the 2025-26 season. And guess what? That's going to be really ugly because when a guy production-wise regresses from year one to year four, it's not a good sign. And he's super young. He's only 22 and turned 22 not that long ago. But there's just so many questions about where he fits, what he excels at, if he has the right mentality. And so I just think if you're looking at Memphis's roster and how they've set themselves up, when they need another great player alongside John Morant, they invested in Triple J like they expect him to at least be close to that. I mean, you're giving a guy $26 million plus a year. I know there's going to be a little bit of cap inflation, but that's a big contract, dude. That's a number two or a number three contract, and I do not think Jaron Jackson Jr. is that unless he becomes all-world defensively and, again, is much more efficient offensively and finds a way to actually score in the paint like a big man that he just doesn't do right now. He's this 6'11", like, wannabe guard wing. It just sucks. I don't like watching him play, and I think we are going to start hearing some major Triple J criticism soon because you can only play like this for so long, and once that contract kicks in, the expectations go up with it, and I mean, for the fourth pick in that draft, man, when we have seen what... Luca and Trey have done, even Aiden obviously has his flaws, but was a super productive player on a team making a finals run. Triple J at this point, as far as what he's actually done, is closer to the Marvin Bagley tier. Now, I think he's a lot better than Marvin Bagley, but good Lord, man, he's a frustrating player and he's consistently underperforming and I've had enough of it. Yeah, I mean, you've been critical of Triple J for a while and I think the big thing, man, is the is the long-term impact for Memphis. And I mean, it's... Let me ask you this. You said 25-26. When does his... Like, has his contract kicked in fully yet? Next year. He will make, I think, like 23, and that'll increase by a couple million for the next three seasons. Yeah, and what Memphis has effectively done is handcuff themselves to Triple J because who is going out there to trade for him? Like, you just have to get a sucker franchise to come in or you got to take pennies off the dollar. Like, I don't... The first issue is making the salaries match. The second issue is getting requisite value for a fourth pick. Like, I don't know, man. If Memphis holds on to him, they're done. Like, you're basically handicapping yourself to the 
what, six to 10 seed out West every year because you're not going to have the cap flexibility to go out and make moves, to trade for a star. You're going to, ta- you're going to have to take Triple J, another young asset, and a bunch of picks to go out and get that star. That's the only way it happens. And it sucks, man. Memphis has got a lot of young talent. And think about it too, dude. Not only that, if you're going to want to pay some of these young guys, the DeAnthony Meltons of the world, the Desmond Baines of the world, who are really valuable to making this thing go right now, you're going to have to let some of those guys go. Like, this is just a work. Isaiah Williams, if he comes along. Like, dude, Triple J is going to sink this boat. Um... Let me ask you this. I know you said he's not a long-term five. Do you think he's a three? Like, like what is his... What is he moving forward? Is he just a... <laughs> he's a soft four? 100%. I mean, that's what he has to be. And again, he will bring value as a defensive four. We have seen that. And he can be a, a help room protector. He can play the five in limited minutes and all that. But I was never a triple J ceiling optimist. I was always a triple J floor optimist, but my thing was I didn't really trust his ability to go get a bucket in the in-between area. I didn't like his post game. And I was like, what's his ceiling as a high end scorer?" And I think we've seen that he doesn't have that, but right now he doesn't even have the value of a consistent, reliable scorer Who's easy to fit in with your offense. He's just not playing good basketball. And uh, you're right. The most problematic thing is what this does for Memphis because, simply put, they invested in the wrong guy. They have seen progress and development from everybody else in this organization, dude. Everybody gets better with the Grizzlies. Everybody is a dog on this Memphis team. We've seen it from Dylan Brooks. We've seen it from the guys you mentioned, Melton and Desmond Bain. We saw it from Grayson Allen before he left. Everybody finds a way to be productive, to improve, except for Jaron Jackson Jr. And... He is really just a disappointment, and I think the fact that he is now back and healthy and there isn't an excuse has kind of had to wake everybody up to that fact. He's not even the best Michigan State big man on the roster, bro. I genuinely much prefer Xavier Tillman. I like him as a basketball player more. Yes. Floater. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful floater. Now, Triple J is the floater too, but I don't like it. It's a driving floater. It comes off the bounce. Or it's just, a, I'm scared of contact floater. It's not a, they're giving me the floater floater. So, there's my hot take. All right. Had to be a little bit critical there. But honestly, I feel like at this point, it's justified. And Triple J has to start p- playing a whole lot better soon, man. Because, again, I don't feel like that contract has been widely criticized. Because maybe there was faith that he was going to look like a different player. He has not thus far. And uh, I'm not optimistic. No, it needed to be said. They were a ton of enthusiasts for Triple J coming into the season. Um, There still are. I'd sell your stock. I'd sell your stock very soon. Um, From a guy who was pretty disappointing to start open this season to a guy who's turned it around a lot, that's Trey Young. My next hot take is that Trey averages 28 points per game the rest of this season, and the Hawks still miss the playoffs. And, I mean, what a fall from grace, dude. Uh, A a fluky, uh, you know, run in the playoffs last season. And I don't know, man. There's It's tough for me to say this because Trey's obviously going to have a huge burden on him regardless. And he's going to need to do this to even get them in contention to make the playoffs. Because they were not in any of these games early on when he was struggling. And it's been a lot more competitive recently. 
Over the last five, he's putting up 32-9-4 on 53-52-88 splits, and the Hawks are 1-4 in those five games. Now, it has been a brutal schedule, I will say, for the Hawks. It gets a lot easier from here on out. They had to take on the Nets, the Nuggets, the Jazz, and the Warriors. But, I mean, even in their one win versus the Bucks, it took Trey dropping 43-10-8 for them to pull that out, and he was knocking down everything, just pulling from half, pulling from super deep, not missing whatsoever. Like, I will say, Capella and Gallo looked a lot better, too. Um, like Gallo finally wasn't shooting those dumbass contested turnaround fadeaways in the midrange like he loves. I hate you, Gallo. You kill me sometimes. But they've been horrible defensively this season. And again, Carson, that was the biggest thing that you touched on um, about this team in the playoff run is how elite Clint Capella was. They're 28th in defensive rating right now. They're 29th over their last seven games. They're league average by offensive rating. That is with five guys shooting 40% off the catch. That should not happen with an engine like Trey, with guys knocking down their shots from the perimeter. And on the defensive point, and a little bit on the offense, DeAndre Hunter is out for eight weeks now. That is a major loss. And I know Hunter had been disappointing. Like I had talked about how he had been disappointing with his rotations. He looked a little slow to get reacclimated and readjusted to being back on the floor finally, but he's not going to be back until January. That really hurts your overall team. And I said earlier, man, because we asked, do we need to be concerned about the Hawks, uh, you know, about a week into this season? I said, no, I really trust the wealth of talent here. I don't trust this bench. This bench has been horrendous to start out this season. Like, there's a couple of guys that I think I have faith in moving forward that can be better. Kevin Herter and Bogey can step up as the season goes along and just shoot better. Like, Herter has been horrendous. He's been kind of the odd man out that has not been shooting the pill well. But Bogey has not been the same player. He is not the same kind of playmaker, just impact performer that we've seen. That's, that has a lot to do with Trey just taking over every possession. Like, every possession is a Trey Young possession. And this is something that we beat a drum on. That's my biggest issue with this offense, Carson, is that I mean, we've touched on it before. Trey is such a good offensive engine. He is. And he creates instant offense for this team. But it's like, there's no flow. There is no just, there's no inherent ball movement here. It is a Trey Young pick and roll every time. It is Trey getting into the lane and kicking to someone. I'm not saying it's not good for offense. Again, Trey is great at creating offense, but there is just no flow. It is guys sitting around going, all right, Trey, do your thing. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just sit here. I'm just going to – no, go ahead, do your thing, Trey. Nobody's moving. It's just stagnant, and I think that's the biggest issue with this offense. Um, they're third to last in passes, and I don't know if it's going to take them getting a secondary playmaker like we have talked about and letting Trey work off ball. I don't know if the answer is getting Lou Will more mo uh, minutes. You're asking him to turn back the clock seven years and really be a high-impact player. I don't think that's going to happen. And, like, the offense has been obviously worse, but – that's not even the biggest issue with this team. It's the defense. I think we have seen repeatedly this year, Carson, Capella continues to get drug out to the perimeter and continues to get beaten. Trey is just an overall defensive minus. Again, you lose DeAndre Hunter. This bench, as I touched on, has been horrendous to start this season. I just have a lot of issues with the Hawks thus far, and I don't know if it's going to get better. There is a wealth of offensive talent here, but there is no flow to this offense. And it is just going to take such a superhuman effort from Trey Young to will this team to the playoffs. And when I'm looking at other teams around here, Carson, I believe in the Cavs. I believe in the Wizards to an extent. I think the Celtics are going to figure it out. Dennis Schroeder's looked a lot better. I believe in this defense anchored by Robert Williams. Like, I had this team in the Knicks-Bulls kind of tier before this season started, and even at the start of this season. To me, they're in the Hornets-Pacers play-in tier right now. 
And I don't think that changes. I think this team could make the play-in, could make the playoffs as a 6-10 to 10 seed by winning a play-in game. But that's it. Like, I do not see this team outright making the playoffs. I don't even see them being close. I, I think it's a really long season for the, for the Hawks. And it's going to get easier. And I think I'm going to take stock in inventory of what they do in the coming games. Because, again, when you're playing a lot of these teams, the Nets, Nuggets, Jazz, Warriors, it's going to be brutal. But I don't know, man. The, again, the defense has been horrendous, and there's no flow to this offense. Those are my two biggest issues, and I don't really know if it gets better. Yeah. It's really tough to find many players on this roster who have played up to expectations. Trey, I think, has gotten to that point after a slow start. John Collins maybe hasn't had overwhelming raw production, but has been super efficient and just does his job offensively pretty darn well. But... Bogey, man. Like, I don't know how you can look at what this guy did down the stretch last year, where in April and May, which is 20-plus games, he gives you 22 a night on damn near 50% shooting from deep and shows his value as a secondary playmaker and really an electric scorer of the basketball, and not be shocked and disappointed by the fact that he is now putting up under 12 a game 13 games into the season. And... I just think you're right, man. It's the same old story. Like, Trey can take them so far, and we saw it last year. He took them really far. But they need more consistent production from other guys in balance. And it's just troubling. Herter has not been shooting the ball well. Cam Reddish has very sadly come back to earth. And really beyond the catch-and-shoot game from deep and a little bit of that pull-up jump shooting game, he doesn't have that reliable scoring menu of options and the playmaking isn't all the way there and Gallo has had a rough year and DeLon Wright hasn't been good in the minutes he's been on the floor like it's just been a drag and defensively it's really inexcusable this was a team that when it needed to be last year was a really good defense and Clint Capella drove that and I think he's still been a good defensive big this year but it hasn't been quite the same and it hasn't been enough and they were still a really bad defense without him last year but I think you also see the fact that they don't have rotational bigs here like without Onyeka there is no depth at that position and now as you said without their best wing defender and DeAndre Hunter for another two months defense is going to be tough dude they don't have good guys at the point of attack they lost their best guy on the wing they don't have depth bigs so it's literally just hey we need Clint Capella to take away the paint consistently. And I don't know if they can play as hard night to night as they need to when they aren't winning games. Because in the playoffs last year, we saw, you know, John Collins may not be the most gifted defender, but he was getting up and he was playing hard on that end. All of those guys were. And if they're not going to do that for 82 games, it's going to be tough. Well, no, and that's the exact point that I was going to mention is this isn't something that you can attribute to skill. It's there has been a lack of engagement by these guys. Like, they don't look locked in the same way, and I don't know if you can attribute it to them being demoralized from the losing streak, because obviously that sets in just not winning games against tough competition. You can't expect these guys to play their hardest when they're losing games, or is it they're losing games because they're not engaged? You know, it's a double-edged sword, and it just gets worse. I don't... That's a serious concern. If this team plays hard, like, there's just a different vigor in the teams, like, when you watch the Bulls play. Because if you ask me, like, yeah, I probably like the defenders on the Bulls more than I like the uh, the Hawks. 
but it's not by much. It's not like the Bulls have standout guys on that end, but they play hard. And I have yet to see that kind of energy and tenacity and will in this team. And we are going to have to see it if they just want to make the playoffs. Because as you have said repeatedly on this show, Carson, I am in complete agreement. This is the deepest the East has ever been. And if this team does not bring it night to night, I truly believe that Trey can ball out all season long and that this team can just miss the playoffs. We need to see that. We need to see that mentality and energy night to night. I agree with you, man. There is no room to get complacent because everybody around them is getting better and things change fast in the NBA and the pressure is on, dude. No question about that. And I'll be honest. I thought about having a hot take for the Hawks, which was they need to make a significant roster move to add a legitimate star-level perimeter creator alongside Trey Young. This was something I repeatedly said about this team and threw out a variety of candidates. Talked about when it seemed like Kyle Lowry would be available. Maybe Fred Van Vliet when it looked like the Raptors might rebuild. I guess really just any smart, versatile Raptors guard. But somebody who can take the pressure off. And Bogey was that for stretches last year. He has not been that this year. And if he's not going to be that, then I just worry about this team. Again, maybe that seems a little bit unnecessary given that we did see Trey really carry this offense. But other dudes went out there, they got buckets, they produced, and we're not seeing that right now. And even last year, I mean, Trey was so ball dominant. I just think if they want to reach their ultimate ceiling, because Trey is a superstar talent they need to have a little more creation and versatility from the perimeter. I just believe that to be true as great as Trey is. And I agree with you. They are 100% in peril right now of missing the playoffs because this conference is that good. And I did not expect that before this year because I was like, hey, what's really going to be different? I mean, they should be healthier. We know their foundation on both ends. And it's just kind of crumbling right in front of us. So I think that they have to get better. I think that they'll have to be close to 500 this year. But when nobody's playing up to expectations and you're struggling on both ends, yeah, guess what? It's actually going to be pretty hard to win games. And it really might be reaching the point where midseason they have to go out there and do something. I completely agree. And I know we, we've kind of already said this, but it's like, no, I don't want to take the ball out of Trey Young's hands at this point. Because who the hell else is going to, you know, if like guys aren't going to move off ball, if there's going to be no action other than somebody setting a screen for Trey at the top of the key. And I know offense has not been the issue, but this should not be a league average unit. You know, like, we need it. Because I think that instills a certain flow. Again, you're going to lock in Trey off ball. You need to make it happen. Because again, dude, at this point, like, no. If Trey Young is out there and he's getting minutes and he's sharing it with Bogey on the floor, no, I don't want to put the ball in Bogey's hands. He's not going to create as good a shot as Trey is. Go get him some help. Free Bradley Beal. Free Dame Lillard. Go get somebody. A free Beal? I don't know, man. Beal might be pretty happy right now. He's <laughs> not even playing well, and his team's the one seed in the East, which is really worth noting, by the way, because Bradley Beal has not played well this year. Not played well at all. But yes, I would still like to see him on a team that I view as a potential legitimate contender, and it would be pretty fun to see him in Atlanta, no doubt about that. All right, here is my third hot take. And I'm saying this because oftentimes we hear people talk about the Warriors and they say they're doing this without Clay and Wiseman. Here's the thing. I think that there are like 10 to 12 players 
more important to the Warriors' title hopes this year than James Wiseman. That's the hot take version. I think that there's clearly a large amount, and I think that you can genuinely get into the double digits because I understand that he was a super prominent draft pick. I understand that he is this really skilled in theory and super athletic big and all that and that he showed flashes last year. But what is the immediate value that James Wiseman is really bringing to this team? Well, he's another rotational big. And Kavon Looney, sure, maybe is an underwhelming name and isn't a great vertical athlete and has a simple role on both ends of the floor. But guess what? He's a solid, smart basketball player who can frankly, do more defensively as far as his versatility and is just a guy who I trust more to make veteran smart plays. And last year, the Warriors were way better, way better with Looney on the floor than they were with Wiseman. With Wiseman out there, they were outscored by 15 points per 100 possessions, okay? Positionally, defensively, he just was not nearly sound enough. He had great moments offensively, athletically, but it's not like he was consistently super productive there. And they just need guys who know how to make good basketball plays consistently. And coming off of an offseason in which he didn't get to play because of injury, and now he's going to have to be integrated midway through the year, I don't see a world in which James Wiseman is a better basketball player for winning right now than Looney. Are there things he should be able to do better? Sure. I mean... He's a massive target. He's this seven-foot athlete with these crazy long arms, and he's a springy guy. But what do they need, like, a dynamic role man for when, by the way, all he's doing is rolling to the bucket, and the Warriors run the second-least pick-and-roll in basketball because their offense is so much more predicated on movement and perimeter creation and shooting and all these things, the back-and-forth between Steph and Draymond and the other parts of this offense— Like, they're not going to start running pick and roll for James Wiseman, so you're not really getting value from him there. Defensively, again, yeah, maybe you think, okay, they need more big bodies, they need more length, but they've been the best defense in basketball, and they have enough versatility there. Draymond has been so exceptional. They've been so great on the perimeter. I don't know how you could be worried about that. And by the way, why is James Wiseman the answer? Like, he was not a good defensive player last year. I get that he has the physical tools and the size, But if you're worried about specific matchups, if you're thinking, oh God, what happens when we run into Nikola Jokic? I've got bad news, Warriors fans. The answer is not James Wiseman. I mean, you are much better off putting Looney in there and saying, hey, just be a big, strong guy, be in the right spot, compete, than saying, hey, Wiseman, go guard an elite big. I like the Bielitsa minutes at the five a lot more than I'm going to like whatever we see from Wiseman. He'll compete defensively and offensively is a significantly more developed, skilled, smarter player. So I just look up and down, dude, and it's like the rotational, competitive, smart wings in this lineup. Iggy matters more. Otto Porter Jr. matters more. Gary Payton matters more, dude, because he can wreck a game. He will come in and play harder than everybody else and disrupt the game defensively and run on offense, and you can use him in multiple ways, and he'll be efficient and understand his role. Damian Lee is going to scrap. Bielitsa I already mentioned. Honestly, well, this is probably taking it too far, but there is a world in which I think Jonathan Kaminga matters as much for this team as James Wiseman. Sorry, I just thought you were going to say Juan Toscano matters more than James Wiseman. Look, man, I know everybody loves JTA. I love JTA, okay? He's a Bay Area guy, and I love him for it, and he played so hard last year. But yes, he has been surpassed by other players on this roster. But Kaminga comes in, 
And yesterday was really impressive on both ends, competitive on defense, offensively as athleticism pops. He's cutting without the ball. And by the way, I thought Mike Schmitz made a perfect comparison. Mike Schmitz, for those of you who don't know, one of the best people in basketball media, NBA draft guy for ESPN. He said that the prototype for Kaminga should be Jalen Brown as a rookie, where you're going to play 15 minutes a game or whatever, not going to have a ton of production offensively, but you compete defensively, you weaponize your athleticism, and you attack closeouts and whatnot, and you try to knock down open shots. I don't know. I do think there's a world in which by the end of this year, Jonathan Kaminga is doing that. I was also a huge Moses Moody optimist. I thought he could play 20-something minutes a night off the bat. Uh, off the bat. I don't think that's going to happen. But I don't know, man. I just think there is enough athleticism and intelligence and shooting on this roster and all these things, and they have found a way to not only survive but thrive with one center on this roster, and that center is Kevon Looney. And I just don't look at Wiseman and think he's the answer. And I certainly don't think we should be saying they're doing this without Clay and Wiseman. Wiseman is a rotational piece. He'll probably play 15 minutes a game. And he could be, again, the 11th best player on this roster when it actually comes down to it. He'll play because he's going to be at a position of need and he'll have the upside and all these things. But I think he'll be fine. And I think that he'll be flawed. And I think people will probably be underwhelmed and Clay Thompson is what matters for this team. That being said, I think the Warriors might be my title pick today. I think that they are the best team in basketball. They're playing like that without Clay Thompson. So if anybody's getting pissed that I'm not giving Wiseman love, it's not a Warriors thing. It's that he doesn't matter to their title probability. Really, they are the favorite or one of the top three favorites with or without him because of what they do on both ends and the depth that they do have and the fact that they have Steph Curry and Draymond Green and Clay Thompson returning. So there's my Wiseman take. Thank you. This needed to be said. And this is my favorite take of yours today, Carson. I don't know if you got two more spicier ones, you know, with some Cajun seasoning, you know, some Tabasco sauce on them. But no, this is a great take. And thank you, because that's the exact point. Every single person I've talked to in basketball circles always lumps them together. Exactly like you said, Clay and Wiseman, and they don't matter the same. And this was my issue with the Warriors taking Wiseman draft night. I get that it's the one thing that you need that could change, I don't know, I guess the scope of the franchise if he maxes out. Oh, he can, you know, maybe space the floor. He'd be a great rim runner, you know, raises their defensive ceiling if he hits his peak. But it's just like the key to Warriors' success has never been based on the big man. Back in their prime, you had Andrew Bogut and David Lee anchoring the middle. And... Look, like, those guys are great, but it's not like they're super athletic or mobile. They were smart guys who played team basketball. And that's why I think you need Wiseman even less. It's not just that he doesn't bring a whole lot to the team. He could mess it up almost. Last season, taking a lot of dumb mid-range jumpers, post-fades. Like, Wiseman does not play Warriors basketball, and that matters too. And again, the center position has never really been the biggest, the biggest position of importance. All I think, man, every day, and this bugs me as a basketball fan, what if the Warriors had just taken LaMelo? God, that would be beautiful, wouldn't it? The ball movement, the, I don't know, I don't. I wonder if LaMelo, I, LaMelo couldn't mess it up. There's so much ball movement in Charlotte. I just wanted to see it, man. It'd be so pretty. Oh, it sure would. And let me be clear. I don't think Wiseman sucks or anything. I think he's a talented young guy. I did not like him coming out of the draft compared to most people. I did not like him for the Warriors. 
I did not think that he should have been the second overall pick, but nevertheless, he's very talented. But when he is a second-year guy, but again, didn't have an offseason and is coming into this well-oiled machine, I don't see the tremendous value. And I just think there are dudes who are more ready to impact winning. Let me ask you this as a Warriors fan. Uh, first of all, do you know when Wiseman is scheduled to come back? He is already doing some activity, but there is not a specific timetable on his return. This is really uncharacteristic for a first overall pick. Do you think he'd benefit from some time in the G League? He said that he wanted to play in the G League to have some time to get his rhythm. So, I mean, maybe they could do that. The thing is, his role is just going to be so different. I almost feel like it is better to throw him into the fire and see how it works. And give him a shot, okay? Keep in mind, this is a hot take. It's a hot take that Gary Payton is possibly going to be more important to the Warriors' title potential than James Wiseman. But I don't think that it's out of bounds. Yes, there are things that he will bring that are valuable. I mean, he is clearly going to be the most athletic big man on this roster. I just don't know how you can look at this team right now and say they need that. And you're right. There is a risk element to this. Like, he is going to make more boneheaded plays, and that's not because he's an idiot and he sucks. It's because he's a young guy who played three games of college basketball and played 40 games in the NBA last year and now is expected to play for, like, the smartest, best two-way team in the NBA that's trying to win a title. It's just a lot to ask, dude. It's a whole lot to ask, and I would not expect a ton out of him this year. So there's my take. It's a great take. Phenomenal take. From one disappointing player to another. My next hot take today is a guy who I was a really big believer in. I've touched on this before, but Jalen Suggs is on track to have the worst rookie season by a top five pick since Dragon Bender and Chris Dunn. Yeah, bruh. Shocking, am I right? Right now, Suggs is putting up 11 points per game, th- nearly three and a half boards and three and a half assists with three and a half turnovers a night. That's a one-to-one assist-to-turnover ratio for you ratio heads out there. Um, He's shooting 31% from the field, 20% from deep, and 83% from the line. And he's 10th in turnovers per game right now, despite just being 65th in the NBA in usage rate. And you know what, Carson? It's worse in a different way than Dunn and Bender. Because it's not like, you know, teams just decided, oh, he sucks. we, We shouldn't give him touches. We shouldn't give him minutes. Oh, the Magic are still like, all right, Suggs, let's see what you can do, man. They keep giving him the burn. They keep giving him the touches. They keep giving him the opportunity. And he just kind of sucks right now. Like, he's got such a limited scoring skill set. So much of his scoring in college was based on him overpowering, outmuscling, outrunning, outbursting guys. And he doesn't really get to his spots or use his body for leverage. He just kind of puts up layups and hopes they fall. Like, he's not really a creative finisher around the rack. That was a criticism I had of him. He's shooting 56% in the restricted area. He's shooting 21% in the paint. The pull-up jumper, yeah. Oh, hold up. In the paint, but not in the restricted area. Yeah. I just want to be clear, because if it was in the paint, including the restricted area, he would be the worst player to ever play NBA basketball. I mean, that's just horrendous. The pull-up jumper isn't falling. He's shooting 21% in the mid-range, 23% on pull-ups. And the thing that's scariest to me, Carson, is game to game, man, it looks like his confidence is just dwindling, dude. He doesn't want to pull up, put up that pull-up jumper. It was his bread and butter in the summer league, in preseason, at Gonzaga. 
like his pull-up jumper was elite. And there are times when he has, dude, there will be times when he has like three or five feet and he won't pull it. He will just hesitate and try to blow by a guy because his layup is, I guess, slightly more reliable. He's playing hesitant. And, like, this isn't all to say that you should sell Suggs' stock, that you should bail on him. Like, I still think this kid has a, a way, a way uh, you know, a route in which he's a really good basketball player. He's a smart floor general. He has good court vision. He knows what plays to make. Damn, dude, he just forces a lot. Like, he forces a lot of balls. If he sees a glimmer of a pass, trust me, dude, he is trying to make it. And, and one thing that really is frustrating, Carson, this kid is really good at collapsing defenses. Suggs is great at doing it. When they give him the lane in transition, when he has a sliver of paint, like he is getting to the rack, but he just seldomly kicks out. It's like when he gets to the rack, he's like, oh, this is my time to shine. I can finally get an easy bucket, an open layup. He'll either smoke the layup because of a you know a good contest by a, a paint defender. He never kicks out to catching shooters. Cole Anthony will be wide open. Franz Wagner will be wide open, and this kid wants to take those layups. Still, I think there are flashes and that there is a way in which this kid's a good player. He's a smart cutter. The shot is going to come along. He's 83% from the line, and the shot wasn't an issue in college. You just need to give him time. And on the defensive end, I have still been super impressed. This kid is locked in. He is engaged. He makes life hell on ball handlers. He works hard. He is a good defender. I believe in that. And that's a reason that he can get NBA minutes right now, because he is still a really good defender but damn, dude, this has been a rough stretch, especially offensively. And I looked, dude, I looked through history. 2020, you can mark out Wiseman and Okoro. Both of them will still were inarguably simpler roles than Suggs, way simpler roles, still perform better. 2019, Jarrett Culver was just as bad, but he was the sixth pick, not a top five pick. 2018, you can look at Marvin Bagley, kind of the same player that he is now. He was still giving you 15 and 8 his rookie season. 2017, you could point to Markel Fultz, only played 14 games. I'm not going to hold that against him. Josh Jackson was giving you 13 and 5 in his rookie season. Maybe you could say he was as bad as Josh Jackson. But I mean, I think 2016 is really the year that you can point out and find two rookies that were just as bad as Suggs. And that's Bender who is giving you 3.5 points a night on. 35, 28, 36 splits, and Chris Dunn giving you nearly four points a game on 38, 29, 61 splits. It's been ugly. It has been worse than ugly. It has been horrendous. And, like, talking about guys that maybe need to get some burn in the G League, it it sucks, dude, because it's like the Magic thought they were getting a different player. The Magic thought they were getting a guy. I thought they were getting a guy who could give you genuine impact right now. And I questioned his skill set. But I did not question that it was going to be... I didn't think it was going to be this bad. I don't want to send Suggs to the G League now. Because I feel like at this point, with already where his confidence is at, I don't want to just burn him. But it's like, maybe he needs to. Maybe he needs to beat up on lesser competition, get his confidence back, and figure out the NBA game. Because I do think, man, it's not just a confidence thing now. I do see a, like a sense of... Like, you can just tell he hasn't played basketball that long, man. There's a, there's a way in, like, you can just look that he is just not experienced in... He's a smart floor general, and he sees the floor well, but there's just kind of a... I don't know, man, like a lack of... A lack of feel for the game at this point. So, I don't know, man. Something needs to change. Regardless, Jalen Suggs has been the biggest letdown uh, of this season for me, and he's been the worst rookie since 2016, and that's saying a lot. Well... Yeah, <laughs> it's really sad for Jalen because 
if you look at Orlando right now, the rest of their starting five, it's like everybody is so fun. Cole Anthony is unbelievable right now. Franz Wagner is clearly one of the best players out of this class, at least in this moment, out of a great class. Mo Bamba, like I told you guys, like I said back in April, baby, I never sold my Mo Bamba stalker. At the very least, I bought it back really early, playing the best basketball of his life, spacing the floor, really having an impact on defense, blocking more than two shots a game. Wendell Carter Jr., is doing his thing, spacing the floor consistently, just a smart, good all-around basketball player, facilitating, playing good defense. Carvel actually wrote about him in an article on the NerdSesh website. Go ahead and check that out, nerdsesh.com. Him and four other guys who we don't talk about enough, and I thought that that was very well done. And then you have Jalen, who just looks uncomfortable. I mean, it's like you said, it's like nothing is going for him, and it just compounds itself, and the decision-making isn't there, and he forces stuff, and he can't get all the way downhill, but he has nothing outside of that. And it's really brutal. What I will say is important to remember in this conversation is that there is a long way to go in this season. And there is a lot of room for him to get more comfortable and to improve. Because if you're going to look at the rookie guards right now, Logan, Jalen Green is shooting in the mid-30s. Yeah. Cade is shooting like 30%. Had a brutal first few games. So it takes time. Anthony Edwards last year was 39% from the field by the All-Star break. I mean, trust me, he looked a lot better than Jalen Suggs does right now. But then after that, he looked like a legitimate star and is putting up 24 a game. So there is certainly room to improve. I don't want to write him off. But yeah, I was thinking about those candidates. Fultz, it isn't fair because he didn't play. Josh Jackson, people forget this. And for good reason, because Josh Jackson's terrible. But post-All-Star break, he put up 19 a game. It was inefficient, but he was showing the little floater game. He had a lot of really opportunity on that Suns team. Logan, <laughs> Logan's giving me a very displeased look right now, but I honestly think you're right. I mean, Jared Culver was different level bad. That dude, unbelievable draft bust, like a real all-timer, but you're right. Wasn't a top five pick. So I think that sadly you may be right, but I'm not willing to say anything decisive, but that's why it's a hot take. I do still believe in Jalen Suggs though. I Not as much as I did when he was a prospect. I mean, I thought he was, the fourth guy in this class. I was very confident in him being a really good player. I talked about how I didn't see the same superstar ceiling for him as I did with the top three guys, but I did think he was going to be really good. And it's been a rough go so far. But guess what, Magic fans? You guys have an unbelievable stuff to be excited about right now. Everybody's playing well except for him. Even RJ Hampton's been solid. You guys played the song from like the opening night of Orlando Magic history at your game the other day. It goes, Orlando Magic, Orlando Magic. So, you know what? There are things to be excited about. All right. My next take, Logan, involves another rookie. Okay, it's basically the polar opposite. And this is not going to be a shocker to anybody who listens to this podcast, and I'll try not to be repetitive. But I got to give Evan Mobley more love, man, because he is going to be the best player on a very, very solid team as a rookie. And I think right now, he is like, I'd have to go through everybody, but I want to say he's a borderline top 40 guy in basketball who I would take if I'm trying to win games. And as a rookie, given the talent that exists in the NBA right now, that is insane. I think he's in a different tier than Scotty Barnes as far as actually trying to win games at this moment. 
putting up 16-8-2 on 59% true shooting. I've raved about the skill set so many times over, but defensively is so remarkably advanced. And like, I don't think this is insane to say he's not going to be all defense, but he is like the next tier defensively. He is otherworldly in his versatility. He defends the second most shots in basketball, holds people to 43% shooting, averages a block and a half a game and over a steal a game, and only commits 2.1 fouls a game. It's unbelievable what he can do at the four, guarding on the perimeter, picking up guards, what he can do at the five, protecting the rim with his insane length and instincts and discipline. The dude is a freak. He is a freak, and they've been seven points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. You do not see that from rookies. And I hinted at this last week. I kind of whispered that I thought Mobley was their best, most important player. But then I really thought about it. And Jared Allen does his job so, so well. I mean, that guy is exceptional at just protecting the rim and being a great rim runner and an imposing athlete on both ends. Rubio has been phenomenal this year, commanding the game and just having an all-around impact. Darius Garland has really come along as of late and has had some really smooth offensive performances and I think is their most skilled offensive player. But the two-way impact, the versatility, the lineup flexibility you have with Evan Mobley is just stupid. The passing, the shooting, attacking off the bounce, rolling to the rim, and defensively, again, I think is like really, really transformative. So I've said all this before, but I really sat down and thought about it. And the other part of this is that I do think the Cavs are that good. I think that they have an exceptional level of grit and toughness, and they really, really want to win. They defend their asses off. Offensively, it doesn't always come super easy, but they have multiple creators who I trust. They have good athletes on the interior. Depth-wise, they don't have great names necessarily, but they have dudes who are willing to play hard. I just love the Cavs, man. I mean, that win over the Celtics, that was yesterday, was so impressive. Big-time comeback, and the offense wasn't super easy, but defensively, they just competed and competed and competed, and they did enough on offense. And as far as it relates to this take, the last guy to be the best player on a playoff team as a rookie, which I do think Evan Mobley has the potential to do. The East is so good that I can't say with confidence the Cavs will be a top eight team, but they are eight and five right now, and they look really, really good defensively again, and I think they have multiple real impact guys. We haven't seen that in a long time. Jaw was very close, but the Grizzlies ended up missing the playoffs. Donovan Mitchell maybe makes a case. He was the best offensive player on his Jazz team, but probably not the best player overall. He has an argument, certainly. And then before that, it's like maybe Derrick Rose in 2008, and I don't think he was clearly the best guy on his team. Like He still had certainly another level to get to. We're not talking about MVP D. Rose or anything close to it. We're not even talking about all-star D. Rose. So that's insane. That's insane that he can do that right now. I do not know where you could put Evan Mobley where he would not be a really high-impact winning player, and I will not be repetitive. I will not say anything more about this because I've said it so many times, but it is blowing my mind how good he is right now, and I just want everybody to watch Cavs basketball whenever they get the chance. If you don't have league pass, it'll be tough because they're not going to be on national TV a whole lot. But boy, are they fun. Boy, do they care. And I think Evan Mobley is their best player. Like, again, Jared Allen is really good at his job. Mobley just can be used in more ways on both ends. So versatile. Rubio's been great. But I don't know if I trust him to quite sustain this level. And Garland is 
really skilled offensively, but doesn't impose himself on the game completely, still doesn't get all the way to the bucket consistently enough. I love his skill as a scorer. I love his playmaking. I think he's going to be amazing, and he's really good. But when you consider the defensive impact of Mobley, I don't think he's quite there. So, sorry guys. Maybe this is getting old, but I can't stop giving credit to Evan Mobley because he's insane. Yeah, this is pretty spicy. I thought about having an Evan Mobley take of my own. Obviously, going to be like, oh yeah, Evan Mobley is my rookie of the year pick. But that's not really hot because, I mean, like, what is he, number two right now? I think he has to be the favorite for me. He is a better basketball player than Scotty Barnes. The raw scoring output may not be there. Scotty is great. What Mobley is doing is so impactful on winning immediately on both ends, it's ridiculous. I completely agree. And uh, there's a question brought up about a redraft. Do you think he goes number one uh, right now, or do you still think, like, the Pistons would— would take Cade because honestly, I mean, I know he's your favorite prospect ever. You'd take Cade. I mean, you'd take Mobley number one all day, wouldn't you? Look, I would have taken Mobley number one at all times and forever. Like I, like you said, he was the best prospect I'd ever seen. That's a tough question because Cade has started to come along, and I think that dude's going to be a superstar as well. Let me be clear. I don't think the Pistons are bailing on him after nine games. I guess there is an argument to be made though, where it's like, hey wow, Evan Mobley is insane right now and has conceivably more potential for growth than anybody else because we can see him do more offensively handling the ball and facilitating and shooting. I mean, mid-range already is so impressive, but once we see him really start knocking down the triples consistently, which is going to happen, good Lord. I think it's tough to say. My guess is the Pistons would probably still stick with their guy right now, but if anybody is going to make a case for being redrafted over everybody else through 13 games of their NBA career, it's Evan Mobley. Yeah, it's a hot take, but it's a good one. I completely agree with it. I think Jared Allen does make a compelling case. Um, yeah, it's a good take. I also want to touch on, man, Killian Hayes has looked really good for the Pistons. Another good ball handler they got there. I think him and Kay can coexist. I like what I've seen. Um, on to my final – oh, excuse me, you got something. Yeah, I forgot. Can I give you another little Cavs take here? I think that Colin Sexton tearing his meniscus, first of all, hope that he recovers well and all that. This is nothing personal. I just think it matters 0% for their team success. Like, without him, they gel really well. They play really hard. They have two really nice ball handlers already. They just don't need him. And he sucked this year. I mean, he was scoring 16 a night on 45% from the field, 24% from deep, and they had been 15 points per 100 worse with him out there. Yes, I do want them to have more offensive punch. I want more reliable shooting. But Sexton is not an easy guy to fit in places. He doesn't want to be a catch and shooter regularly. He doesn't want to take a ton of triples, even if it's more efficient. And when we are getting the two-way impact out of a guy like Rubio right now, and the facilitating, I just don't know why they need Sexton if he's going to take them out of rhythm and score kind of inefficiently. And really, I wish that they had traded him. I mean, I was on that train because I loved Garland, and then I thought maybe they can find a way to work if they really make Sexton this pure scorer. But with how well things are going, he was the odd man out even when healthy, and I don't know when he'll be back, but I just don't think that they need him at all. I wish that they got a positive asset for him, like a 3 and D wing would be amazing, but they're going to be just fine without him, and I really don't think it matters. And in some ways, it makes it a smoother operation with sort of a clearer identity and uh, 
they're going to be fine. And they're going to be really competitive this year. And again, I don't know if they have the talent and the sort of ease offensively to get to the playoffs, but I really hope they're a playing team at the very least. Yeah, me too. I mean, I could see them I could see them giving a team a run for their money, certainly in the play-in. They are one of my five favorite basketball teams right now. Like, I love it, dude. They have one of my favorite players in Evan Mobley, another guy who I love in Garland. Rubio is awesome to watch right now. And I just love teams that care this much, especially young teams. And I wish I'd picked them to win more games because I've always liked the Cavs' individual pieces. And I guess I just didn't know if they could take a leap like this immediately. But they have, and it's been amazing. And that Kevin Love contract comes up soon. Uh, still a couple years, but yeah. Well, in a few years, they'll be able to pay some other guys to fill in the rotation, fill in the flanks. How much did they? Uh, how much did they? Did they? Did they load marketing up too? I can't remember the exact semantics of it. It is. Uh, he's got four years, including this one, and sixty-something uh, million. But the fourth year isn't fully guaranteed. Yeah, it's not great. That sucks. Hey, but I like the rest of the squad. Yeah, the Cavs are elite. And they are going to be successful, I agree, in spite of Colin Sexton's injury. So I'm going to flip it to a team who has already been successful in spite of one of their stars being out. And that's the LA Clippers. And this isn't really quantifiable. My take is just, I think the Clippers are the third scariest team out West. And that's behind, what? That just blew my mind. Yeah, I mean, I think firmly behind the dubs and the jazz, I believe in them, though, dude. They're third in defensive rating this season. They're fourth in defensive rating over the last eight games. They're eighth in offensive rating over the last eight games, and that's just with the threes falling. They are fifth in three-pointers made over the last eight, second in three-point percentage over the last eight. They are hitting their stride. And, I mean, everything you touched on, Carson, about PG, he's doing it. Like, Paul George's MVP case, I wish it was in a less heavy year, dude, because what he is doing is outstanding. He is the complete engine. When you don't slide off of him and double-team him and force him to kick that rock, he is putting up a tough lay, and it is falling. There are shooters all around down this roster. Nick Batum, I believe, is at like 60% over the last seven. He is blazing his three-point attempts. You talk about not having a second star with Reggie Jackson. Like, bro... If Reggie and Eric Bledsoe can just manage to hit their threes at like a 36-37% clip, that's a lot asking of Eric Bledsoe, as we've touched on in this in the past. But the formula works. The offense flows. The three-point shooting is outstanding. And Carson, you said this before the season. You said this in the playoffs. I don't want to run into him. I don't. Because PG is going to keep this MVP stuff up when it comes playoff time. And you're going to get the best two-way player in the world coming back come playoff time. Like, I'm going to keep it short and sweet. It's a very simple formula. You get a lot of guys who can knock down three-point shot attempts. You have two guys who can collapse defenses at an elite level who are elite out of the pick and roll. The Clippers scare me more than any other team out west except for two. Maybe more than the Nuggets. Maybe more... I'm trying to think about other teams out west. The Suns. Scare me more than the Suns. They scare me a hell of a lot more than the Lakers. Like, they scare me more than the Mavericks. This team is terrifying. This team is terrifying. This is with my most hated player in the NBA, Marcus Morris, not hitting his three-point shot attempts at all this season. Like, I don't want to run into the Clippers' buzzsaw in the playoffs because they are going to tear some teams up. I think they could easily make another Western Conference Finals run. And if PG keeps up this MVP level of play, 
and Kawhi comes back mirroring himself, this is a team that I can see getting to the finals very easily. Wow! Oh, wait, you said with Kawhi, right? Well, that's an interesting thing to throw into all of this because there's so much conflicting information on if Kawhi is going to be back at all this year. Skip Bayless went out and said, oh, I have it on good authority that he's not going to play. They're not even trying. Then you see updates about, oh, he's progressing well. So I don't know. Yeah, if they have Kawhi, I think that they re-enter that conversation. Dude, this is bold, man. I will say a couple things working in your favor is that we haven't seen Marcus Morris for very much this year at all. We haven't seen Serge for, for very much this year at all. So fully healthy, there is a level of depth that is really impressive. But I just don't think there is enough consistent high-level creation here. The shooting has not been as elite as expected, and I just think it's too much of a burden on PG at the end of the day. Defensively, dude, so much respect because I thought that they were going to regress a little bit on that end. I thought they'd still be solid, but I did not expect them to be the number three defense in basketball right now. They really do compete on that end. It's just offensively... Bledsoe sucks. Like, I don't know what else to say. He's bad. And Reggie Jackson, as much as I love him, has not been consistently productive enough. And if that is the case, well, then their spacing suffers a little bit and they don't have that high-level creator, bucket-getter, playmaker alongside PG. And I just think the Nuggets, dude, with the way they've been defending once Jamal is back, whoo, that offense is going to be scary. And the Suns, it's such a consistent two-way formula. We know their identity. We know their depth. LA, I just don't think is that talented. I mean, like I said, who is their second best player right now? Is it Reggie with all the struggles he's had? Let me quote Earl Sweatshirt. Don't care. I don't care. Not even a little bit? I don't care. So do you think Paul George is Michael Jordan? Maybe. I mean, the guy's been pretty solid this year. Dude, I just, what PG's been doing is outstanding, and that's the biggest thing you touch on the defense. I didn't expect that. Like, if they keep playing this way all season long, they can knock down any team because they're going to clamp you up, and if they're just hitting their three-point shots, like, the biggest thing is Kawhi, obviously. If Kawhi doesn't come back, they're kind of screwed. Probably a first-round exit. Uh, you know, a hotly contested uh, series with the Mavs or something again. Let me ask you this, though. Do you think Bledsoe deserves any credit for, for the clips on the defensive end? Of course. I mean, he is a reliable impact guy there. But it's just really frustrating offensively. I've talked about my issues with the Clippers offense, but clearly they have turned it around and they've been winning as of late. And it's impressive, dude. Major props to PG, to this team defense. You know, I didn't expect Hartenstein to be playing as much as he has. I thought that they would go more just pure small ball. That's what they did in like their first couple games. But they have turned to Hartenstein and he has been fine at his job. Zubats, you know, is always going to be productive in his minutes offensively. Kennard has been playing well, which I have very much enjoyed. And yeah, like, look, the nerd sesh favorites on the Clippers are doing their thing. I mean, Terrence Mann, you're getting the versatility, the playmaking. He's been shooting the ball well enough. I just think if I were to put this team in that tier, it would have to be Reggie Jackson is the version of himself that we got in the playoffs last year, and the shooting is better than it has been because it has been a legitimate major issue in stretches because 
I mean, Bledsoe just doesn't do his job there, and you're playing another non-shooting center, so it's just not the same spacing as last year, which I thought it was going to be closer to. But yes, I was very worried about Bledsoe, and that has been justified. I Sorry, I just noticed uh, another thing. I agree with the points about Bledsoe. I mean, you should be critical of him. BJ Boston, though. Balling in the G League. He could play a huge role the rest of the season. I just think, if you're talking about, like, secondary creators, bruh, I'm not saying BJ's going to run an offense or something, but he could play a big role. I mean, especially when, yeah, you're counting on Eric Bledsoe and Reggie Jackson. Like, I definitely think this kid could be getting minutes later in the season. Look, I think BJ Boston is dirt and nasty. I think he's one of the most talented 51st overall picks that you're going to see. I don't think he plays a big role this season, though. I mean, there's a reason that he slipped as far as he did. The production was not there in college. The efficiency was not there outside of the pure bucket getting. Are we getting enough out of him? I'm not confident. Logan is, though. Logan thinks BJ Boston's going to win MVP this year. And Keon Johnson's another interesting guy who theoretically could come in and give you effort on both ends. Yeah, I, I like the Clippers. I think that they've clearly progressed, but I would not have them in the tier of my top four teams. I think that they're pretty clearly in the next group. I just think Warriors, Jazz, Nuggets are a tier for me. Suns are a very, very good, reliable next team who have won eight straight games, by the way, so deserve some major respect. And then I would start throwing the Clippers of the world in there. But props to them, props to PG, and it's been fun to see them turn it around. All right, my last take, Logan, I don't know if you'll be able to contribute to, and if you can't, that's fine. But normally, I don't really start doing much NBA draft stuff until a little later in the year. Don't start watching a ton of college basketball because we're dedicating so much time to the NBA. It's overlapping with NFL and all that. But this class is so exciting that I've had to watch the top couple guys at the very least a little bit. And my fifth hot take here is that I think Chet Holmgren is going to be, in my eyes, a Mobley-level prospect. Keep in mind, I said last year that Evan Mobley was the best prospect I had seen ever in my life as a sentient human being, which is not that long, but it's, you know, a half decade or whatever. And I could see him possibly surpassing him. And I know that he just had a rough game statistically against Texas. He had two points. And uh, yeah, fair enough. His productive game was against Dixie State where he's six inches taller than everybody else out there on the court. But you talk about a guy with the tools to do everything, dude. I mean, a revolutionary big man kind of talent is what we're looking at here. Is that a joke? Is that a real school? Yeah, they played against Dixie State in their season opener. He had 14, 13, six assists, and seven blocks. And yes, there's a massive physical advantage. But like, I see a lot of blowback for Chet after that game he had against Texas, which is part of the reason why it's great to hop on this train now and be this high on him. Although it's early and there's a lot of time for opinions to develop. That's why it's a hot take. But I see people talking about, oh, he's the next KD, or he's certainly not the next KD. Get that idea out of your head. He's not the next KD. I don't know where that idea came from. He's a big. And by the way, I think most of his value is probably going to come defensively. He is going to be game-changing on defense. Like, he's a seven-footer with a seven-six wingspan. His timing as a shot blocker is insane. His discipline, his ability to remain vertical, it's nuts. He is a major intimidator in there. While he is physically underdeveloped and isn't going to scare people with his physicality, he's 194 pounds, 
which obviously needs to change. But right now, it's like I'm watching Gobert Jr. out there. It's just an eraser effect in the paint. And then offensively, again, he's not going to be KD, okay? We may never see another KD, but he'll be a big vertical target. He's an agile mover. He's a very legitimate threat as a floor spacer. And you will see his ability to put the ball on the floor, attack off the bounce. It's not going to be like KD. It's going to be like Carvel was texting me about him and made a comparison of his game offensively to Christian Wood. I think that's more apt. I don't think he'll be quite that athletic. I think he could be more skilled. I think he brings other things. But it's going to be attacking closeouts. It's going to be, hey, you have to respect him as a shooter. And guess what? Now he's a little bit quicker than you. He's more comfortable putting the ball on the floor. And then one of my favorite things about him is his instincts as a passer, which are insane. He is throwing lobs out of the high post. He's spotting cutters. He's throwing lobs in transition. He's throwing touchdown outlet passes. Dude, you don't see that from college freshmen in their first game at seven feet tall. He's just a fundamentally smart and unselfish basketball player who also has so much God-given ability on both ends, physically and skill-wise. So we'll see if he's consistently aggressive, but I think he's a guy who would have an insane impact taking 12 shots a game because of the versatility he has offensively and defensively he's going to wreck the game and then he'll make good decisions and all that. He'll space the floor. And yes, he needs to be bigger than 194 pounds, but he's this good at 194 pounds. And he will add muscle. Like, yeah, he's got a freakishly thin frame. And I don't want to compare him to like AD and Mobley and Gobert, but at the same time, all those dudes were kind of sticks when they came into the league. All those, like, AD came in a league no more than 220, and now he's, like, 250. One of the strongest guys we've seen. Gobert added 30-plus pounds in the league, and Mobley, I think, is going to be a skinny guy, but clearly doesn't matter a ton, and you can play him at the 4 or the 5, and he's going to get bigger and add strength. So if your biggest concern about a college freshman is, oh, how strong is he? I think that that tells you that, hey, there's a lot to like about this guy and we'll see. It's been two games, and again, one of them was not a very good one. But what we have seen, sheesh. I mean, this dude I think is going to be special. And I will say, Paulo Bonchero, who is like probably the other top guy in this class, is also something else, dude. 6'10", 250, explosive, skilled, aggressive, can knock down shots from the mid-range, is going to be a floor spacer, transition weapon. Like, you talked about the MVP race evolving, dude. Basketball players are evolving right in front of our very eyes. Amani Bates isn't in this draft class, but he is in this collegiate class. I mean, he's going to be an insane scorer of the basketball. But I think Chet right now is the top dog. I think he could be, again, a revolutionary kind of prospect. The game is changing right before our very eyes. And he's not like a consensus number one right now. I see him mocked like number three in some places. By the way, like we saw Mobley go third, and I think that's going to be a mistake. It's early, but I'm confident. I got a few things to add. So uh, on the Bonchero point, I think Bonchero is like a higher – I have like a higher floor for him. Like I just think he's going to be a good player regardless. I think Chet's got a much higher ceiling though. Um, I think the Mobley comparison is pretty good for a couple reasons. He's just as versatile, just as switchable, can go out to the perimeter. That's where I'll start. I don't have a whole lot to add about his offensive game. I'm going to have to watch more tape, but yeah. Kid's a special shot blocker. He is. Please don't clip this out of context. That kid's freaky long. That dude is just, 
freaky, man. He has got some long arms. Like, yeah, you talk about the Gobert's. I don't want to compare a guy to the best shot blocker in 20 years. But yeah, frame-wise, it's definitely there. I believe in both the kids. I think they're both going to be really solid. Um, Chet's freaky. I don't... Can we stop doing that, though? Can we stop comparing dudes to KD? Just because a guy's skinny does not mean he's Kevin Durant. Look, guys, I'm not... Me and Carson are not Kevin Durant, okay? I know we may look, frame-wise, similar to him. We are not Kevin Durant. I, I hate that, dude. Kevin Durant is... Might be the most skilled NBA player of all time. Stop. Yeah, it's unfair and it's also just inaccurate. And I don't know if that's social media branding or whatnot. And they came out with a video that said that when he was 16, because obviously he is really skilled for a seven footer, but that's not the foundation of his game. He's going to be a do everything impact two way unicorn kind of guy, like a real unicorn. All right. Like Evan Mobley, but I think maybe with even more potential, but we need to see more to justify that certainly, but it's pretty freaky, man. And Paolo, I just think it's just, how is he not an all-star offensively? When I look at his game, I just think, who does that? There aren't bigs who do that. Like, I think about people I could try to compare to him. It's like, Miles Bridges has that hybrid skill set, right? Where it's, he can go be a tough bucket getter and he can be a great role man, but he's... 6'6", this dude is 6'10", 250 as a college freshman. He's a freak. And again, I think that he's not as impressive as Chet Holmgren. And I need to watch more of the other guys in this class, but those are just sort of my initial takes. So there you have it. Hope those takes were spicy hot enough for you. And this was a whole lot of fun. I mean, I love doing episodes like this, get to throw out, you know, some of the boldest things on our mind and we'll see how it all pans out. We'll check out... We'll check back in at the end of the year. But of course, we'll check back in with you guys before then because we've got another show on Wednesday that you'll want to tune in for talking some more basketball. As we always do, Mondays and Wednesdays, you can catch us here on YouTube, our live stream. You can also listen to these shows in audio form, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your content. Friday, we do an audio-only NFL show as well. You can also stick around on our YouTube channel, see the other content that we do here, video essays, video breakdowns. Logan did one last week on Tyler Hero. I did one on John Morant a few days ago, both of their ascents. Check those out. Check out our website, nerdsesh.com, where we have the video content, the audio content, and written content. I shouted it out earlier, but our guy Carvel wrote a piece about five NBA players we don't talk about enough. Go ahead and give that a read. It's excellent work. You can follow us on social media. Twitter is at nerd underscore sesh. Instagram is at nerdsesh. And with that, as always, I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sash. <laughs>